Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Ron Germain from the National Institute of Health, and he discusses why you need to think like a surfer. There's a certain amount of thinking about being a surfer when you're doing science. There's little ripples in the ocean if you're paying attention. And if you're a really good surfer, you can pick out the ones that are going to be the waves that you want to surf. But then you have to paddle at the right rate so that it doesn't pass you. If it goes past you, you're too slow. If you go way too fast, it's going to hit you in the head. But if you do it just right, you're on that crest and you're going ahead. How we learned to let go and give up being a control freak. And I've always remembered, you know, sitting there and hearing that from him and deciding that there was a, a sort of compromise to be made between what I might consider the utmost efficiency, sort of controlling everything, where I, or maybe what I knew better, and allowing people to sort of grow themselves. And what he does to entertain himself when he gets bored in meetings. If I really got bored, and, you know, you can get bored even at good meetings sometimes. I would begin to pull up some of my photographs and let them cycle on my screen because I wasn't, I wasn't taking notes anymore, knowing that everybody behind me in the audience could see my computer. Um, and that made me sort of well known to my colleagues as a photographer. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today on the Microscopist, I'm joined by Ron Germain from the NIH. Ron, it is an absolute pleasure and an honour to meet you today. Very nice to meet you and have a chance to do this. I look forward to it. I've got to say, yeah, your your name in the even the logical world is huge. It, it, it's you know I'm not a hardcore immunologist, but everyone knows you. And, and yeah, you know, it's not often I'm semi starstruck, but well, I could all start off with a little story about that. If uh, go on. So, there is a Norwegian uh, immunologist who decided to write a book about immunologists, both the deceased and living. And I was chosen as one of the living immunologists, and we did a walking um, recorded discussion of this type. And then she sent me the transcript for this. And I looked at it and I was very upset because there were a few ums and ers here and there. And I said, uh, that's very embarrassing. And I, I edited it lightly and sent it back. And she said, no, you don't understand. I've never had anybody do an interview like that with me, including the prime minister of Norway. <laughs> that wound up getting published in Norwegian. And a few years later, I visited her and she said, an interesting thing happened. My book was pirated off of Amazon. And then I got an email from this young lady who said, I saw my father's name in your book in the chapter by Ron Germain. And it turns out this was the daughter of a veterinarian who gave me my first 
set of inbred mice to do experiments in my basement when I was 15. Oh, wow. And so I got uh, her email and contacted her to ask if her father was still alive and if I could get his email, which I did. And we wound up corresponding. He had moved from uh, Sloan Kettering to being the head veterinarian at Rockefeller University, but had retired. And of all things, his hobby was the same as mine, photography. So we wound up exchanging photographs. Now, this person, I'll stop in a second here, but this person has an interesting last, uh, interesting name. It's Ozzie Bag Jr. It turns out that Balb C, the mouse strain, stands yep. for bag albino. That's what Balb means. And it was his father who created those inbred mice. So everything goes around and comes around. Ah, wow. It, uh, small, big, small world, isn't it? Yes. So, I'm going to tell you, so you were 15 when yes. you started explaining. So I'm going to, okay, so I'm going to take you back even, yeah, I usually come with this late, this question slightly later on. What was the first career that you ever thought you might want to be as a youngest child? What was your first sort of job that you thought you'd want to be? And I only can remember back exactly to the moment I became an immunologist, actually. I may have wanted to be a lawyer before that. Uh, and there are stories that go with that. But I know where I was sitting and what I was doing the moment I became an immunologist at 15. Yeah, go on. I had to do a science project uh, for my um, school science class. And I went to the library and started reading the Time Life Big Book of Science. And I said, well, I'm not going to build a rocket ship or do a volcano. And then I got to a page that had a picture of a white mouse with a brown patch of fur. And that was the uh, prototypic output of a classic experiment from Billingham, Brent, and Medawar of in utero, in utero tolerization. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. Great. Why I wound up getting the inbred mice. My father ran a, a garage, but one of his customers was Ozzie Bag Jr. And my father asked him, can you help my son? He can't use these Pinto mice from the pet st store. And I wound up going to a branch of Sloan Kettering and getting mice out the back door and a little manual about their anatomy so I could harvest spleens and lymph nodes and build cages and put them on my ping pong table in my basement and bred F1 mice and gave them parental cells so they had GVH and then tried to cure them with a thymus graft. And remember, I'm doing this in 65, which or four and five, which is about a year after Jacques Miller starts publishing on the thymus, which I had read about already. And I even wrote him and said, uh, I don't understand how to do aseptic thymic grafting. Can you help me? And the letter followed him uh, to the Chester Beatty and then to a sabbatical he was doing at NIH. And he wrote back. Uh, and it was terrific. And 30 years later, I get an email from Jacques Miller, Ron, you're one of the world's experts on antigen processing and presentation. How does cross-presentation work? And I wrote him back and said, Jacques, you don't remember, but 30 years ago, as a high school student, I wrote you asking for advice. And I find it rather cool that 30 years later, you write me asking for advice. And I actually had a copy of our you know, exchange. Some of the slides have that information. 
and sent him a copy. And that's now a story they use at WeHi to introduce me when I give a talk because it's it's spread throughout the institution. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it now. I I, I can I cannot believe that would happen today. Well, I, I don't. We'd never get the mice out to to start with, so that right. that couldn't happen. Yes. But if a 15-year-old was to write you a, a letter saying, I'm really interested in this, can you help me? Could you could you even let them in to start helping in the lab and welcome them as a placement to a summer student? You know, how much could they do now? Uh, I didn't quite get down to 15, but a high school student who was, I guess, 17 at the time, wrote me saying he had just read a paper that we had published in Immunity on uh, thymic development and selection. And he had a number of questions. And I said, oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and I got in touch with him. Uh, and uh, he had a lot of interesting questions, clearly very smart. And I actually invited him to spend time at NIH, which he did. He wound up going to Harvard uh, and MIT for his PhD and has started a biotech company since then. Wow. And, and you, you did so those listening won't be able to see the pictures, obviously, so we'll, we'll describe the picture. So this this looks like you were to, uh, possibly at the age of 15. Yes, it's probably the only picture anybody has available to them without a beard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is, uh, is this your school project? Yes. Wow. The, the, on the, behind you, to your left shoulder is one of the homemade cages that that I prepared for doing this, and uh, and it describes the um, runting disease, the GBH that I was trying to uh, cure. So, so that's fair at that time. Yeah. So you knew where you were going at the age of fifteen. You knew what you wanted to do. So, so well, where, I, where did you go on to study? So uh, initially, I, I was in my home. Then I did some work at my high school, and my high school biology teacher stayed after school late every day except Friday when he had bowling night. Um, I then uh, was accepted to, we didn't have AP Bio, one of these advanced placement courses in my high school, and I applied to the National Science Foundation to take an AP Biology course which I did at Syracuse University. Uh, and that was meant just to be a class, but I had already been doing this research and I didn't want to spend the summer not engaged. And I said, are there any immunologists here? And they said, yes, there's this woman, Bertie Argerus, in the basement of the building where the course was. And so I wandered on down and knocked on her door, just like I wrote to Jacques Miller. And I said, I want to do research with you this summer. And, um, she was obviously a bit nonplussed about this. It was a sort of pimply 15-year-old saying they want to do sophisticated immunological research. So she figured she'd get rid of me by sending me off to read three or four JEM papers and come back uh, and report on them to her. And I'm supposed to be three o'clock. I don't remember if it was a Monday or a Tuesday. And again, I have this written recount from her. So I know this is all you know, not my imagination. She said, at precisely 3 p.m. on the anointed day, I knocked on her door and proceeded to explain to her all the details and all of these JM papers. And so I wound up doing research with her in the summers uh, through most of college. Uh, you, you must have been almost frightening 
for them to, to, to come across someone who's who's so dedicated and picks it up so picks it up so fast so naturally you know it, it's not a natural thing to just to instinctively pick up and you obviously have a gift uh, in that on that side of things so that was when you were 15 moving through into college <clears throat> so usually i'd say you know when you were at university did was there has there been any moment in your career where you wish you'd done something different um not really i mean there are individual specific sub choices but not different from the main thing that i've done no i think it was the right choice is there any path that you followed that you regret going down a specific a specific project or something else that was just destined to fail or anything else in hindsight well well there is an older field of immunology uh that's been renamed actually so now we call them regulatory t cells but back in the day they were called suppressor cells and i did quite a bit of work on suppressor cells now i don't regret the work i i did and i think i did it as well as it could be done at that time uh but there were many immunological careers that foundered on the shores of suppressorology whereas a few of us have managed to sort of resurrect ourselves so doug green was in that category when he was with dick gershon uh, harvey Cantor, obviously who was doing all the work with 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 dick uh myself but there are others who have not fared so well in in the new world of of immunology so not regret but uh, there are many interesting stories about uh folks in in the field um teasing would be the polite way of pointing out how they remind people of my involvement uh, in in those studies I, but, but as you say, at the time, it's the best technology. It's, the, it, it, it's, it's what makes sense. It's what the evidence is showing at the time. It's only until other technologies come through. And I'm looking at your background now, and you've got lots of very colourful light microscopy, confocal fluorescence images. How much, I, I know you're moving into spatial omics type technologies now as well. How much do you think technology drives the science and how much does the science drive the technology or, or is it truly hand to ha hand in hand i had a discussion when i was trying to help uh, some other folks at nih set up an nih wide systems biology program and one of the scientific directors those are the people who control the budget for the intramural research at nih and individual institutes said to the group um tell us what you're going to do and i said we're going to learn how to do system biology and he, he repeated his question saying i guess you didn't hear me um what are you going to do and i said we're going to learn how to do systems biology and he said i just i'm not getting through and i said no, no you have to understand do you think sanger cared about phi x 174 or how to sequence dna I said, we are trying to learn how to sequence DNA. And he said, no, but you have to tell me what you're going to do. He just never, he never got it. Um, so, but that's related to your question, which was you need, if you can develop a new technology or you can take one from a totally different field and apply it in a new way, 
you get to ask questions and get answers that are new and that other people would have trouble getting. And yeah. as a general principle, I've actually given talks to, to trainees about the fact that there's a certain amount of thinking about being a surfer when you're doing science. There's little ripples in the ocean if you're paying attention. And if you're a really good surfer, you can pick out the ones that are going to be the waves that you want to surf. But then you have to paddle at the right rate so that it doesn't pass you. If it goes past you, you're too slow. If you go way too fast, it's going to hit you in the head. But if you do it just right, you're on that crest and you're going ahead. And so I've changed my career multiple times. So I, as we discussed, I was a cellular immunologist in my, let's call it my youth. <laughs> but in the late 70s, very early 80s, so I'll date myself a bit, uh, I became aware of something called recombinant DNA. Wasn't making much of an impact of any in immunology at the time, but I said, for biology, this is going to be a big deal. I don't know anything about it. I couldn't really staff my lab with people who knew it. And so I took an illegal sabbatical from NIH to learn molecular biology. In fact, I took a course on recombinant DNA at Harvard where I outranked the person teaching the course. And he asked me during the course, why was I doing the homework? And I said, because I want to learn the subject. And that wound up uh, leading me to NIH and working with John Simon and cloning uh, mouse MHD class two molecules. And then because I was both a cellular immunologist who was already known to the people at the laboratory of immunology, but now be had become a molecular immunologist, I got a tenured position and that's where I stayed ever since. But I then, after a, a period of time uh, using that approach, switched to doing cell biology in terms of the biochemistry of T cell receptor signaling or the movement of molecules uh, in the, the processing pathways, and then switched again uh, to use imaging as a primary tool because at the time, you know, we really didn't have much in the way of an understanding of exactly what's happening in people. You have gallons just tells you the stuff, you know, small insights are circulating around and cannulating people, cannulating sheep. But if you wanted to understand how all the things that I and others had worked on in antigen processing and presentation and T cell recognition were actually happening in secondary lymphoid tissues, you had to look at them. So we got into imaging, you know, right at the crest of the wave. So I think it, it is completely joined at the hip. I couldn't build a microscope, but I could work out technology for using the microscope. And those, I think, are very important. People forget that most Nobel Prizes, a good fraction of them are given for technology, not for the biological or chemical or physical discoveries, because it's recognized that that's how science really advances. You know, PCR, two for sequencing, take a look. Uh, so I think people who don't think about technology and how to import it or develop it um, are taking short shrift in, in what they can really do. In terms uh, of yeah, it's a, it's a really excellent point. You think super-resolution microscopy for the Nobel Prize. You think the cryo-electron microscopy solving it completely, but it's the technology. GFP. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's cool. uh, they weren't that interested in GFP per se. And understanding the phrase, understanding the manipulation, how to use it as a tool. 
right that got that prize so certainly the microscopy do you remember the first microscope you used i had a i don't remember whether it was a tasco but you know one of the kinds of microscopes you would buy as a kid and i used it uh when i was young back in the day that we're talking about to to look at um I try to be moving hoke and look at, at things in drops of water, you know, in paramecia, and, uh, but also insect wings and various things. I actually gifted that microscope to my niece when she uh, was young with the view that she might follow in that path, but she became an investment analyst. <laughs> so it didn't, it didn't work out. But the interesting thing about microscopes is I have no background in optical physics. I have no real background or training in microscopy. When we started doing the imaging that my lab has done for the past 20 years, the only thing we used a microscope for was to count cells. So right. we really developed all of these tools uh, sort of by the seat of our pants. But that was the thrill, wasn't it? Yeah, that was terrific. It's, uh... We also had some help, and I do. I want to make a call out because it's it's important for thinking about the collegiality versus the competition in science. When we got our first two photon instrument, I actually went, sat down, you know, turned it on, tried to look at things, and it was black. We didn't see anything, and I said, "This doesn't make any sense." And Louis von Andrian had, you know, been. Uh, doing work in this area he's been doing microscopy for a lot longer than many people actually recognize and so i called him up or i wrote him i forget i emailed him and said did you have any suggestions and he said which objective are you using take a look at the back aperture and we looked at it and it's this little tiny thing and he said oh, no, no, you need this olympus lens with this big fat back aperture and we managed to get the olympus rep in and, and borrow one of those lenses screwed them into the scope turned it on and all of a sudden, now we can see things. Now, you know, Uli was basically a principal competitor at that point. We were working on almost exactly the same thing. But he was, without any hesitation, willing to share that information. And then later on, he hosted two of the postdocs from my lab to learn the intravital method that he and his uh, brother-in-law, Thorsten Mempel, had developed. So... I think that's a very important aspect. You know, not everybody behaves that way. Yeah, no, uh, I think it's a very good example of how to work. Uh, everyone's competing against everyone, but we should collaborate and support as well, because uh, yeah. that's how science goes faster, I guess. You mentioned your microscope you handed to your niece. Um, she became a, an analyst. Have any of your family moved into the science world so a little bit of background um neither of my parents completed college they both were of an age where uh the depression required them to go to work for their family they my mother was finished high school at 16 you know at the top of her class my father had done very well uh my father started college but again they had to go to work uh, in the end, my mother was a part-time bookkeeper. My father had a, a lamp business that didn't succeed as the, the newer large-scale things like the Kovacs kinds of companies came up. And he worked with my uncle to run the garage that connected me eventually to Ozzie Bag Jr. Um, so no professional really in, in the family uh, at that point. But that's changed a bit. So we now have 
three MD PhDs in my immediate family, myself, my son, and my daughter-in-law. Oh, wow. Uh, my son is now uh, just about to start on the faculty at WashU uh, as a, a hemonc uh, specialist uh, with laboratories. So sort of the double or triple threat that's um, always a, pro a problem these days. And uh, as I actually talked to you briefly about before, uh, I did science projects with my son uh, all through his elementary school, middle school, and high school. And that tradition continues in the family. Our uh, my grandson, who's now six, uh, was gifted with uh, a molecular modeling kit. He got very interested in gems and crystals, and did his first science project on the bonding in diamonds and rubies. How old did you say? Six. Oh, good golly! <laughs> you sent me this. So, would you like to describe what this 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 picture is? Right. So on the top is um, are some notes I took attending Zan Cohen's <clears throat> seminar series at Rockefeller University. So as a high school student, I couldn't drive in New York City, but my mother would drive me into New York to attend those seminars at Rockefeller. And I'm drawing macrophages and lymphocytes in this note. Well, many years later, I volunteered to give uh, a talk about the immune system to my son's first grade class. Uh, which is what you see uh, drawn in that little diagram. That's me standing there with the projector. This is before PowerPoint. These are real slides. <laughs> and all the class wrote me um, these thank you notes. Uh, and my son was required to write it as Dear Dr. Germain, not Dear Dad, to be the equivalent of all the other students in the lab. So uh, what goes around comes around. And uh, I... How important is that engagement with school children? Because obviously you were inspired as a school child. Do you still get to go into schools or do you, do you send any of your team into schools to help try and inspire that younger generation? Um, I did have what's called a post-baccalaureate student recently who did an outreach project with students uh, about vaccines um, in Baltimore. I used to volunteer when my institute had a special program of outreach with high schools in the community. And I ran the science fair in my son's elementary school for many years. And I would go in right before this, the science fair season. And I had developed uh, a very um, simple way of sort of showing them things they could think about doing. So if you took a water soluble um, green ink, and you put it on a coffee filter and dipped it in water, you'd separate it into blue and yellow in real time. I could do that right in front of the class. And even my son's, quote, jock friends would be running home saying, Mom, do you have any Mr. Coffee Filters in the house? I got to do this really cool experiment. Um, but eventually the lawyers in the community complained that they couldn't help their children do their science fair projects at home in the way that I could. And it all ought to be done in school. And they canceled the science fairs other than what was done in the class. So, oh, right. yeah, even in a, in a wealthy, uh, well-educated community, there's still resistance to, to science in a certain level. They're very disappointing. That's competitive parents. That, oh, wow. So, but yes, I, I have done it. I do think it's important. And I think 
I always think that the meetings with the, the graduate students and fellows when I give lectures at universities is one of the more important things of the day um, and look forward to that. But thinking about, so you've got your lecturing, you've got the outreach side, you've got, obviously you go to conferences, you've got your research side, uh, panels that you sit on, committees that you sit on. It's an intense job. You've got children, they're growing up, they've moved out, but how did you find time with the children? How did you balance that work versus life? And, you know, how, how did you inspire them as children? So I, I was incredibly fortunate. My wife was a research psychologist and uh, children's um, psychologist. And she decided that it was important for at least one parent to spend a lot of time at home with uh, a very young child. And so she moved to half-time work. So she was home uh, a lot of the time and, and that relieved me of some responsibility. On the other hand, one of the nice things about doing research and especially if you are not actually there running the flow cytometer or collecting the images where you've got to do that on a time schedule your time is your own. I can decide to cut out a time from say, you know, five in, in the afternoon to eight at evening when a young child would, would be going to sleep and then work after that, which, you know, was mostly, you know, you know, reading literature or writing papers. And so I went to many of my son's soccer practices to as many of the games as possible. But the other thing, as I said, that I did from the very earliest days when he was in elementary school is work with him on projects. Uh, and there are always discussions about, well, you did some of the work on the poster board that he, you know, turned in. Isn't that wrong? I said, no, because he's going to learn what this, how to really do this and how to do presentations. By the time my son was in high school, he was the go-to person for all people doing project uh, presentations in the school and the same things happened at Wash U that he is the person everybody asked about how to clean up their PowerPoints and do the presentations. So uh, a lot of it was, you know, father to, to, to child handed down um, through those interactions in addition to the ones that would have been band performances or soccer games or, or anything else. I think thinking about, you say you used to play soccer, what is your sport? What What's your favorite sport? No, I didn't play soccer. My son played soccer. Um, I went to his, his um, practices and his games. I was not a sports person per se. I ran cross country for a while. I used to consider myself rather fast, even though I wasn't long and lanky, until I got to high school. And it turns out that my high school track team set the national records for things like the 440 and the four, you know, 400 meter yep. and relays. And one of my classmates won a bronze medal at the Olympics. And I realized that I was not fast and should not continue to do <laughs> That's that. Fair. That's just not fair though, I, is it? And uh, I also was a wrestler in high school. And, and did fine in my weight class, but I never found it all particularly enjoyable to, to do that. And so I started a hobby 
when I was in college. And uh, you're going to find this interesting. It's actually photography. So I do imaging in the lab and photography <laughs> when I'm out of the lab. And um, I, I was going to ask you, what what is your photographic subject? What sort of photography do you like? They're, they're very diverse. I do landscapes, cityscapes, um, street photography, portraits. Um, I'm learning how to do bird photography right now, which is a challenge. It's it's not so, so easy to do it really well. Uh, the problem has been I've become the go-to photographer, so I'm almost never in any of the pictures. I have tons and tons of family pictures at Thanksgiving, Everybody's there. All the food is there, but I don't. I'm not there. Is, is that not out of choice? I, I, I look no, I don't. I just I'll take the picture. No, I, I, I you know, occasionally I'll turn the camera around and sort of do a selfie. But I'm talking about a real camera, not a, not a, you know, not an iPhone in doing this. And there was a period of time where I would go to meetings. And if I really got bored, and you know, you can get bored even at good meetings sometimes, I would begin to pull up some of my photographs and let them cycle on my screen because I wasn't I wasn't taking notes anymore, knowing that everybody behind me in the audience could see my computer. Um, and that made me sort of well known to my colleagues as a photographer, and actually with no, multiple invitations to create books. Uh, for for them or you know they they encouraged me to, to start it as a business which given that i'm at nih that's even even that's a problem so no i didn't do that <laughs> that bird photography on with you so actually I, I was one of the very first digiscopers if you've heard of digiscoping uh so you take photographs through your telescope of birds yeah. uh yeah. So I, you need bird. long lens. You need a long lens to do it really well. Yeah, that's what a telescope is. It's a big lens, but right. super portable. Uh, so it's very early days of digital photography, full stop. And yeah. uh, hence, I was one of the first digiscopers. Now everyone does it. And they've got the big cameras and everything else. But it did mean I got published in a lot of the birding magazines for picking up the rare birds when they landed in the country. But Great. that's a sad hobby. That was from a long time ago. That work took over my life and the family took over my life. There's just no time for that at the moment, or very little time, anyway. Uh, so that's your cup of tea. If, so we talked about being 15, we talked about where you are now and your, your hobby with photography as well. If you could do any job in the world for a day or a week, what would you like to try and sample? Hmm. I'm going to give you a slightly strange answer because I certainly don't want to sample it and one day would never be useful yeah. potentially. But I will tell you that I um, often work on my lectures, you know, mentally. I run through them as if I'm rehearsing a script so I know what I'm going to say. Well, I do the same thing in lectures as if I was a major politician. What would I say to get people to understand they should get vaccinated or they should worry about the climate? And I, I write all these speeches out, but I'm not sure I'd want to be the politician for a day because usually one day doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, and in the current environment, I think it would be somewhat unpleasant. But the notion of being able to rationally influence a larger audience for for the better 
you know, for good would be would be very interesting. So would you want to be the politician or would you want to be the script writer that is writing the script for the politician? Uh, I prefer to write my own speeches. <laughs> so well, I I'm both. not sure how many politicians do write all their own speeches. Yeah. Uh, because as you say, actually getting the message across succinctly and, and inspiring and to get people on side is a gift. It's, a, it's, a, it's an art. Uh, so I'll, I'll have you down as a politician then at that mm. point. I'm sure I could think of other things, but that is, that's sort of a... No, I think that's a good answer. No, I, I think that's a really good answer. You know, I, I, I have a question, which is usually who inspired you? And actually, I think you've inspired yourself and your science teacher helped develop mm. that. Uh, is there anyone in the community that you you actually look up to? I, I, I'm sure there's plenty that you've looked across to and looked up to, but is it one or one person who stood out as being an inspiration uh, that you admired particularly? I'm sure there's plenty you admire, but you're just, it's a one standout person. I, I don't think I could give you that, that answer, right? because in part, if you go back to what I said before, I've always looked beyond the narrow area that I'm working in. And so there are people in, in different fields who make different contributions that I've always um, admired for what for what they've done, but there's no one that has, you know, changed the, the direction of my work or influenced me in a way beyond um, the personal mentor. So as I said, I had the high yeah. school teacher. I then worked with Bertie Argerus for, for many years. Um, and, you know, I think she was a very strong influence. She's Dutch and was very rigorous, you know, in a sort of Dutch way. Um, and a lot of my time spent in the lab was washing pipettes, you know, you had to learn how to do science at one level and then go do things like cleaning the pipettes and making sure all the, you know, Alkanox is rinsed out of them and you can use them again. So there's a certain sort of compulsive level of uh, being careful about your your uh, experimental work that that came. And then I you know I did my uh, PhD with Baruch Benassarif, and he has a, a very uh, many different sort of uh, reputations, if you will, at a certain level. But if you knew him very well. And he wasn't the most open person to everybody, but I knew him very well. We actually shared a birthday, not by year, but by date. Um, he was incredibly insightful ab about um, the way things worked. He could he could look at data and and pull out an an interesting um, story about what it was telling us. And I think. You say, you know, who would I admire? People who can do that, who can look at the data and tell you something that's not obvious in it, but attracted me. And it's it's sort of now, in a way, what I'm known for, whether it's in asking questions at meetings or whether it's it's looking at data and and putting a very different spin on it. So, this, uh, I, I'm going to pull up some pictures in a minute from your, from your past. Uh, so I'm not sure who they are, so you can tell me who they are in a moment. But you mentioned uh, the importance of data and pulling out information from the data or being able to see things in the data that isn't instinctively there. How much of a role do you see AI 
coming into this now and playing a role and speeding up science using machine learning through to the AI right. so, to identify so we, we can't see. We use machine learning and neural networks, which is a form of AI in uh, interpreting our very complex imaging data now. It's just not possible to do it by just looking at it. I mean, the pictures are pretty, but if you've got 80 parameters, you're, you can't just look at it and, and figure out what's really happening and extract all the relevant information. Uh, and I get a weekly mathematical seminar from one of my current fellows uh, who's developed software tools to take the process data that we use machine learning to create from our images and turn it into spatial understanding. What are the relationships that exist in the tissue uh, that are not, you just look at it and of course that's what's going on. The T cells are outside the tumor, they're inside the tumor. and I have to learn about generalized mutual information and bits of, of, of mutual information data. And, you know, it's really you know, very interesting. So I think in the general sense, I think there are enormous roles for it. I think we should be using it more correctly. Um, it has limitations because it can find things. It can tell you certain things. But often there's a kind of black box that goes from the primary data to that interpretation where you don't know how that connection was made. And sometimes knowing the connections, what the steps are between things is actually important. It's a level of understanding rather than just an answer that's going to be important. So I would like to see it evolve in a way in which there's a certain level of an ability to deconstruct what comes out at the end to understand how that uh, feature space arose. But yeah. I do think it's going to be incredibly important as we do more and more high content work. Yeah, and, and as we started, I think a little while back, spatial omics is, is really having to push our abilities in that side and actually connecting all the data set is not that easy. And you mentioned your fellows and your team. So I presume this is your current team? Uh, it's about a year old but many of the people are still in the group. That's still yeah. a big group. So this is not just my lab. This includes people who are, so for example, the, the woman just to the right in the green uh, shirt. So she was an independent research scholar. So that's a transitional appointment between postdoc and faculty and two of the uh, individuals, the two uh, on the, the far, uh, your left-hand side over there are were part of her group. So that, those are not um, my fellows. The gentleman in the yellow T-shirt actually has a, a junior faculty appointment in the Cancer Institute, and two of the people are um, postdocs with him. So this is, uh, let's, let's say, an extended family. Yeah, still 50. I, I think I count about 15, 15, 16, right. 16 around that. It's, it's, it's in a an impressive array of uh, students, postdocs, fellows, and, and your extended team. You, now, you sent me this, because this, this is looking like a very young yourself. You say, now you've got a beard. Uh, I, I had the beard a long time, but then I used to have hair. <laughs> that's clearly changed. But as I said, uh, Ben Astrell, who's the other person in the IR Gene t-shirt, uh, was my mentor. And we both had the same birthday, October 29th. Um, 
and I was not allowed to give him a present. He often gave me some presents. Mostly what I did is I resurrected old, older photographs of him or photographs I had taken and uh, framed them up and, and gave them, and that I was allowed to do. <laughs> but anyway, just to go back, if you if you still have it, the IR gene, that, that's immune response genes, which is the original name for MHC molecules, which is what he won the Nobel Prize for in 1980. Uh, and so this was a dual gift from the laboratory to us, sort of matching T-shirts. And so this, I presume this is a... That's the Nobel Prize celebration. So that's the day that it was announced. No, so, so that was in, in the office at the time. That's, that's in his office at the time. And if you look at me, looking a little bleary-eyed, holding a, a glass of champagne, I have a camera. I was the semi-official photographer for that as well. Of course. Yeah. And then, so the, this obviously, is, a few years afterwards. Right. So three generations. So um, Bill Paul, who's the other individual in this picture, was a uh, fellow with Ben Asaroff. And he became the head of the Laboratory of Immunology when Ben Asaroff moved from NIH to Harvard to become the chair of pathology. And Bill, of course, was my um, lab chief for, uh, let's see, how many years would it have been? 33 years when I was at NIH. So not my official mentor, but a mentor of sorts. Um, and so there was a lot of um, lineal connection here. That's wonderful. Now, <laughs> going back, you sent me some uh, near, well, not far side, but near side pictures in this instance, uh, mm -hmm. all, all featuring yourself. So, who drew these? They, one was the near side was drawn by a um, physician who worked in the lab briefly, and the far sides were, or the um, Calvin and Hobbes were annotated by members of the, the laboratory. Um, as illustrations of what it was like to be in the lab. So I'm, I'm well known to operate in fire hose mode. So when uh, the person raises their hand and says, Dr. Germain, may I be excused? My brain is full. That's a, uh, a comment many people would be uh, familiar with. Control freak is, uh, that's actually quite interesting. So when I started the lab, I, I was pretty controlling about how experiments were done. And I had a, a fellow who I now have to call Sir Robert. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about, Robert Leckler. No, okay. Um, who was, uh, became a Sir during the Jubilee celebration. And who was also the recent head of the equivalent of the Academy of Medicine in the US, in, in the UK from Hammersmith, but then he was at King's for a long time. He wanted an exit interview as a postdoc. And I said, what is an exit interview? And he said, well, I want to discuss, you know, what it was like to be here, you know, how things worked. Well, and I said, um, it was terrific. Really enjoyed it. But I would have data that I might even have for a week or so before we have our meeting. And I'd show it to you, and in 30 seconds, you would tell me exactly what the next experiment should be, exactly what the controls in the experiment should be. And you were right. 
essentially every time you would do that. But that was not so helpful for my career development. <laughs> um, and I've always remembered, you know, sitting there and hearing that from him and deciding that there was a, a sort of compromise to be made between what I might consider the utmost efficiency of sort of controlling everything where I or maybe quote, I knew better and allowing people to sort of grow themselves. And that's evolved into a, a style in the lab where I expect the fellows to take ownership of their project to a level where they know more about that topic than I do. And I'm really a colleague and consultant based on my experience of how to be sure we're choosing the right question uh, to look at uh, the data and, and how to tell a story about it, but not to control you know, what they do. And the best thing is when they come in and they show me something and I say, well, it would be really nice if, and then they turn on the next slide in the PowerPoint and they say, yeah, I've already done that experiment here. Here's the results. And they're, they're ahead of me. And I think that's terrific. So I, I'm not not the control freak in that in that anymore. I, I think that's amazing advice, but I do wonder if Sir Robert actually thought to, uh, came up with the ideas himself before he walked into your office, so he could develop those skills. Obviously, it's doing no harm whatsoever. Uh, but you do no, wonder. I, yeah, he must have tested himself. He must have thought, right, what's wrong going to say? Let me predict. Yes, absolutely. So I'll tell you that this actually is something interesting because it goes back to Benassarif. So I was the equivalent of PubMed at, at Harvard for immunology when I was a student and an early faculty member. There were only a couple of journals you really had to know. I read, I read all of them as soon as they came in. They were all in print, obviously, at the time. And somebody could come and ask me, do you know if, and I'd say, yeah, in the middle of the March JM, there's a paper by so-and-so that, that has that information. And so the discussions with Ben Asher would go as follows. The JM would come in in the morning, and I know I'd get a call from him at night. And he would say, Ron, have you read? And I say, yes, I've read the, the particle by Zinkernagel in the JM today. And he says, and do you realize that? And I say, yes, I understand that it means this, that, and the other thing. And he said, well, then we, and I said, I've already set up the experiment. That That's the conversation. I had to know what he was going to ask me about in which journal, by what person, in which article, with what interpretation, and what experiment needed to be set up in, in real time. And the best of my fellows do exactly that as well. I, I, yeah, I, I, it's quite difficult to comprehend the amount of reading that must have gone on. <laughs> And doing research as well. Well, I'm going to switch tack a bit and I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. So the first question is, are you an early bird or a night owl? Both. Both? Okay. I'm reasonably early and I keep working reasonably late. Well, what, what, time, what time do you typically wake up? What time do you typically go to bed then? By, by 6 a.m.? Yep. And these days, you know, I go to bed a little earlier than I used to, 11. Still, that's burning both ends. 
when's your most productive time of day? Hmm. Different strokes for different times. There are certain things that work well uh, in a quiet evening, you know, when you want to really comp, comp, you know, contemplate things and there are not other Zooms or meetings coming up or other, other events and there are other things that sort of do well in real time. Okay. <clears throat> PC or Mac? Mac. McDonald's or Burger King? Equal. Equally good or equally bad? They're useful for what they're useful for. Not a frequent meal. Okay. <clears throat> That's okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Short or long? Espressos uh, or Americanos? I make my own lattes. That's, uh, grind your own beans as well? No. Just Nespresso. Beer or wine? Neither. Very rarely drink. Chocolate or cheese? Hmm. There are moments where the chocolate is really important, but I have, uh, I eat much more cheese. Okay, so if you were to go to a conference, it would take you out, what would be your the best food that someone could actually serve in front of you? Before I became allergic to it, it would have been probably really good sushi. But unfortunately, that's limited now pretty much to tuna because everything else is a white fleshed fish and I now have an allergy. Oh. So, outside, so, okay, we, what would be the worst the thing? Chinese, so then it would be Chinese food. Excluding <laughs> allergic sushi, <laughs> what would be the worst thing that someone could put in front of you? Incredibly spicy garlic-filled Tex-Mex. There's not many people that give a straight answer. That, I'm, I'm impressed. I can, I can understand why. That's a good answer for us. Do you cook at home or do you wash up at home? I cook and wash up. You must have a dishwasher, though. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> TV or... Oh, what is your signature dish? Uh, I won a chef's competition for vinegar-slithered pork. Uh so Jacques Bonchereau competed in, in that. There was a, a meeting uh, in Dallas where everybody had to bring a recipe and did a kind of um, chef's competition. And uh, everybody thought Jacques would win for this very, you know, lobster sauce scallops. But I won with the vinegar slithered pork and vegetables. Congratulations, sir. I've never had that. So now I'm going to have to look that up. TV or book? I think I know the answer to this, but TV or book? Uh, these days, it's actually TV. And is it serious TV, or do you watch any watch any mindless TV to shut off at the end of the day? I, mindless TV at times, and uh, I love action movies. Ah, uh, oh, okay. So my next film, my next question is: What is your favorite film? I don't have a favorite film. But I have to admit that um, I've watched Hero. I don't know if you know that movie. Not seen it. So, here, so it, it uh, is gorgeous. This is by the uh, director whose name I would tort, you know, 
completely ruin if I try to pronounce it, who did the opening of the Beijing Olympics. And the photography, uh, the colors, everything is just amazing. And at the same time, the ending is actually a surprise. And there's a dub version and a subtitle version. And I don't like the dub version at all because you lose the impact of the the statement that the person who becomes the first emperor, who is the first emperor of China, makes, even though you can't I can't understand what he's saying without the subtitles, the way it is said is incredibly moving. So this is quite a combination of of, of, of sort of history, um this is visually stunning. Do you there are other movies that are sort of close to that category that are completely different. <laughs> so I'm eclectic taste. Oh, Star Wars or Star Trek then? Uh, I was always more of a Star Wars person, but when I go back and look, I find them incredibly hokey in most of the most cases. That's it. That's, that's understandable. Uh, what about your favorite Christmas? movie don't have one okay and what sort of music do you like listening to uh it alternates between classical and blues okay and one final quick fire question what's your favorite color probably red no one to date has said rhodamine or fluorescein. They always go for tomato. We are nearly up to the hour, so I'd like to ask one more question, actually, or maybe two if we can squeak it in. Uh, everything, your career sounds serene. You know, wonderfully sailing from a young 15-year-old all the way through to where you are today. But there must have been some hard times in your career. What was the most difficult time that you've encountered throughout your career? Um, since this is relatively well known, I'm not disclosing anything. I had Hodgkin's disease in 1989, sort of right at the peak of early you know, career success. And I had to go through six months of uh, chemotherapy and radiation. And so, that was not a very productive period in the lab, both because I was basically out of it, but I couldn't direct any of the other folks in the group. And I had to stop going to meetings and a lot of people were sort of of the mind that I might not be around very long. So I wasn't on lists for, for future invitations. And when the treatment worked, I decided I had to resurrect my career. And I, I did not think any of the fellows or other people in the lab were going to do it for me. I had to do it. And it had to be something uh, fairly quick and fairly dramatic under these circumstances. And I had had uh, a postdoc, Andrea Sant, who had trained a technician to do um, metabolic labeling gels to look at immunoprecipitated MHC molecules. And Alan Townsend had just... Uh, published the paper on RMAS cells about peptide being important for the stability of class one molecules. And based on what I knew, I said, 
I think that's going to be true of class two as well. And I know just how to do that experiment because there's an old study from Jack Strominger's group that showed that uh, mature MHC class two molecules did not fall apart in SDS, unboiled SDS gels. And so I went to Laura, the technician, I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take these B cells and put a bucket of HEL in, in with some of them. And then I want you to do a pulse chase and I want you to do a boiled unboiled gel. And we're gonna know in two weeks if I'm back. And she did the experiment, you know, opened the gels up, looked at them and said, yup. That turned into a Nature article uh, that was accompanied by a Nature letter with Shahrazad Zadig Nasseri, who did the in vitro equivalent of showing that peptides stabilize class two molecules. <laughs> I, 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 a very difficult period. And it was a lesson, you know, that I try to talk to other people because you have these ups and downs in your career. And I said, at the end of the day, when you want to get out of a valley, you have to get out of the valley. You can't get your fellows or your students, you know, other people to do it. I, I, I did have one more. I'm not going to ask the last question because I think that's a perfect moment to end on, actually, because I think that advice is yeah, inspirational in itself. And Ron, you've been a pleasure to talk to. Uh, you, know, you are a benchmark as well as an inspiration. Even more fun and enjoyable than I anticipated that it was going to be, which I had high hopes for to begin with. So I, I really enjoyed that tremendously, and uh, hopefully it will turn into the final product you hope it will be. Yeah, Ron, thank you very much, and just keep on going because it's amazing work. And everyone who's listened, watched, please subscribe to the channels, but <clears throat> go and read some of Ron's work if you don't know it personally. Uh, and if you're, a, you've got a young family, get them to listen to how Ron developed his career. Cause you know, it could trigger the next Ron Germain. Ron, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Peter. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the dash microscopists.